At the Coca-Cola Company, Keurig Dr. Pepper, and PepsiCo, some of our bottles can be remade in a whole new way, using 100% recycled plastic. New bottles using no new plastic, except the caps and labels. Learn more at madetoberemade.org. Support for this show comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Loom help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. Some of these people, not many now, but certainly the ones who worked on the campaign, they worked with Manafort and they know Cohen. They're both going to jail. Gets really real when when you find out that two people that you worked in close proximity with are going to prison. That's Jonathan Swan. He covers the White House as a national political correspondent at Axios. I speak with him about a lot of things but mostly about what the hell is going on in the White House. Amidst the stories that have come out in Bob Woodward's new book, Fear, and various leaks in pretty much every outlet in the country, what's the state of play in the White House at this moment? What's the state of mind of the president in charge of the White House? That's coming up. Stay tuned. Stay Tuned is supported by Betterment. Sometimes average is great. Average temperatures would be nice about now. I'd definitely take a more average political season than the one we're living through. But when it comes to money, average isn't really good enough. Betterment is the smart way to manage your money. It's the investing tool for people who won't settle for average investing. Because really, if there's one area where being above average is especially nice, investments are probably it. Betterment combines cutting-edge technology and human expertise to help you make the most of your money. Their tax-efficient investment strategies give you an edge, and Betterment offers low, transparent management fees, no matter who you are or how much money you invest. Betterment offers constant access to information and tools that allow you to track progress towards your goals, so you can always feel like a smart, savvy investor. I mean, you're probably online anyway, obsessively refreshing headlines. Why not take a minute to check on your financials? With Betterment's online tools, you can. Investing involves risk. Betterment can be your guide. And now, stay tuned with Preet listeners can get up to one year managed free. For more information, visit Betterment.com slash Preet. That's Betterment.com slash Preet. Betterment. Outsmart average. So I got a lot of questions about a particularly, in my view, outrageous tweet that the president sent on an otherwise peaceful Labor Day this past Monday to remind you This is what Donald Trump tweeted on Monday afternoon. I didn't get to it until the evening. Trump wrote, quote, two long-running Obama-era investigations of two very popular Republican congressmen were brought to a well-publicized charge just ahead of the midterms by the Jeff Sessions Justice Department. Two easy wins, now in doubt, because there is not enough time. Good job, Jeff. He ends the tweet sarcastically. So Trump is referring to the recent prosecutions of... Chris Collins, who is being charged by the Southern District of New York, my old office, 
for insider trading, and also Duncan Hunter, who is also a Republican congressman, he's from California, for misuse of campaign funds for personal use, which happens to be a federal crime. I sent a lot of tweets, probably broke some kind of evening record for myself on Monday evening, so many that my mom asked me on Tuesday morning if I would sort of relax, calm down, <laughs> calm down a little bit. So I want to explain something. From time to time, I make comments about things that Trump says or does. I've also said from time to time that we can make too much of things and that you have to have some proportionality. And some things are bad, but they're not you know, the, the most important thing that we should be focusing on. But from time to time, I get actually very upset at something that the president does or says, because it's an action that I think can undermine the rule of law, or it indicates even more than I appreciated before how much disrespect he has for the rule of law. And this was an example of that. I literally think that this is the most unethical, damning tweet that the president has ever written. Jeff Tubin, my friend and colleague and legal expert, wrote on Tuesday, the next morning, that this tweet by itself is potentially an impeachable offense. That's how strongly people feel who have some background in law enforcement. So let's, you know, <laughs> break it down. I'm sure you've had a chance to think about it. Here, in a more explicit way than Trump has ever said before, he is saying that the Department of Justice is to be criticized for following the facts and the evidence in bringing criminal cases that seem to be very strong, by the way, from the reading of the indictments, should be criticized for bringing criminal cases against congressmen simply because they're Republican. He's literally saying in this tweet that political affiliation and political party should be, in some ways, a shield against prosecution because of an impending election. I find that extraordinary. And you would think that even if he thought that, that he wouldn't be trying to put pressure on the Justice Department not to bring similar cases like this in the future. It's mind-boggling to me, and it's mind-boggling, I think, to everyone who cares about law enforcement and the equal application of the law. You don't prosecute people or not prosecute people because they're Republican or Democrat. It doesn't work that way. And for him to chastise Jeff Sessions for not interfering in local U.S. attorney's offices, bringing good and righteous and provable cases is, to me, horrible. A couple of other points about this tweet. You know, he, he tries to make this seem, uh, even though it is his Justice Department, the Attorney General is a Republican, the Deputy Attorney General is a Republican, the Director of the FBI is a Republican, his appointees everywhere are now all people who he has picked because he got rid of all the Obama-era U.S. attorneys. He's trying to make it seem like these two cases were long-running and there was some, you know, political vendetta on the part of people who were beholden to the prior administration in bringing these cases. Now, I can't speak about the Duncan Hunter case, but I can say a couple of things about the Chris Collins case. It was not an Obama-era investigation. I happen to have some basis to know that because I was an Obama-era United States attorney. And the conduct that is at the center of the charges, the insider trading charges against Chris Collins, took place in June of 2017. June of 2017, I believe, was the post-Obama era. So, you know, the sentiment expressed and the insinuations made have no basis in law, have no basis in fact, have no basis in tradition. And I've yet to see anyone, Republican or Democrat, defending 
this tweet. In fact, there's been a chorus of outrage over it, as I think there should be, from Democrats, Republicans, nonpartisan people, uh, legal experts, commentators, you name it, people think this is wrong. Look, and it's another piece of the puzzle in trying to figure out what is in Trump's mind. Like When Trump sends a tweet like this, basically saying that the Justice Department should be a political arm and should not be doing things that would harm political allies, in the context of that, knowing that that is what Donald Trump thinks, because that is what Donald Trump wrote in a tweet, it just overall becomes easier to believe or to convince a fact finder that what was in the mind of Donald Trump when he talked to Comey about Flynn or when he fired Comey or when he engaged in all sorts of other actions, it's easier to believe that his intent was to obstruct when he writes a tweet like this. Hi, this is Steve Campbell calling from Dedham, Massachusetts. Brett Kavanaugh has held high positions in particularly the Bush administration where he was involved with a number of issues which are likely to come up in front of the court. And uh, my question is, assuming he's going to be affirmed as a Supreme Court justice, wouldn't be he be obliged ethically to recuse himself from any issues on which he had uh, acted? Thank you. Bye-bye. Steve Campbell, thank you for your question. So as I record this on Wednesday around lunchtime, there's only been a day of hearings, and most of the first day of hearings for Brett Kavanaugh consisted of, you know, a succession of long speeches by senators and protests and a lot of you know, fire about how all the documents have not been produced. And I think those are legitimate arguments. I'll have more to say about the hearings and how they turned out on next week's show. We'll spend a lot of time on it. But with respect to your question on recusal, your particular query on whether or not Brett Kavanaugh would have to recuse himself from issues that he was involved with, yeah, I guess as a as a standard matter, that would be true. Elena Kagan, for example, who had been the Solicitor General under Obama when she became a Supreme Court justice directly from that job. She had, in recent times, worked on policy matters for the administration. And so from time to time, she recused herself from matters that involved the work that she had done in the administration because she took a particular side. Now, generally speaking, Supreme Court justices, it's only up to them. There's no independent, separate judge or arbiter to decide, you know, or ethics advisor to decide or recommend that you must or must not recuse yourself. So in times past, there have been controversies over whether or not Antonin Scalia should have recused himself from various matters because he was a, you know, a hunting partner and friend of Dick Cheney, and I believe he did not. So, you know, good questions to ask, depending on the issue and the controversy, but Supreme Court justices generally don't like to recuse themselves, generally don't recuse themselves. With respect to Kavanaugh, you know, he's been a judge on the D.C. Circuit Court for, I think, about 12 years, and before that, served in the Bush White House. So the issues on which he might have had personal knowledge and that might cause a recusal were things that came up, you know, more than a decade ago when he was in the Bush White House. So I, I don't imagine that any particular issues like that would come up a dozen years later that would require his recusal. Uh, the more common question that people have been asking specifically is whether or not Brett Kavanaugh would have to recuse himself or should recuse himself. Should the issue of presidential testimony come up in connection with a subpoena from the Mueller team, or if he had to opine on the question of whether or not a sitting president can be indicted because he was nominated by this president. I think there's, I guess, a decent argument to be made during the confirmation hearings that someone like that, at this fraught moment in the history of the Republic and 
uh, given what's at stake and the, the basis on which Kavanaugh may have been picked, that he should you know, represent that he would recuse himself. But he's not going to do that because he doesn't have to. And when he's on the court, whatever arguments people might make, that he should step aside from a fraught question like that, it's, it's fine for people to think that. But no one should get their hopes up that Brett Kavanaugh is going to recuse himself from anything sensitive relating to this president because he doesn't have to. This next question comes from an email from Chris Welton, who writes, Bonjour, Preet. I am a faithful listener in Paris, France, not Texas. Otherwise, I would have opened with Howdy, Preet. And your podcast is easily one of my favorites. Thanks for all you do. Well, thank you. And one of the questions from Chris Welton is, can Mr. Mueller submit an interim report of his investigation's findings? The logic being that if he were about to be fired by the Trump administration, at least some of his findings would be released into the public domain. Yeah, that's a good question. I think that Mueller basically has a fairly open playbook. He can wait till every part of the investigation is done and submit it to Deputy Attorney General Rosenstein. Since there's no you know, statutory requirement that a report be done in full or in parts, I suppose that Bob Mueller could easily decide if he's closed the books on a particular aspect of the investigation, like obstruction or collusion or some other money laundering investigation, he could do it you know, piece by piece. Um, the other question, though, that's implied by what you ask is, well, what's going to happen and when? So here we are after Labor Day, a little over 60 days from the election, and there's been a lot of talk and I discussed this a little bit with Jonathan Swan in the interview you'll listen to in a moment. There's been a lot of talk about, you know, some supposed Justice Department rule that no actions can take place within 60 days of an election. And, you know, there's a general sentiment about that and the general, you know, guideline and, and prudential principle surrounding the idea that prosecutors, and we had this issue, you know, from time to time in our office also, that prosecutors don't take any undue action overtly that could upset uh, or put the thumb on the scale on one side or another in an election. To be clear, the, the written guidance that's very explicit about what prosecutors should refrain from doing is bringing a case, an enforcement action, and making an arrest in connection with an election crime because that bears most directly on the election. So the rule that's explicit does not say, you know, with respect to a politician, you can't charge him with bribery or you can't charge him with fraud or you can't charge him with homicide. It's a question of whether or not the Justice Department is weighing in on how the election itself has been conducted, because that most directly then looks like you're putting the thumb on the scale of one side or another. Generally speaking, though, prosecutors are supposed to exercise discretion and discharge their jobs with wisdom and are not supposed to be interfering in any way, keep a very, very keen eye on the calendar. So the bottom line is I think we shouldn't expect some bombshell action or finding in the weeks leading up to the midterm election, even though Trump is not on the ballot. But we should also not expect that the folks are sort of taking a vacation this fall and not continuing to interview people, not continuing to issue subpoenas, not continuing to do searches when they think it's necessary and appropriate to further their investigation. Because, it, you know, to take a two-month vacation from an ongoing investigation that a lot of people would like to have wrapped up doesn't make a lot of sense to me notwithstanding what people's interpretation of the DOJ guidance is. And one last point about this whole business of the supposed 60-day rule. Again, fundamentally, prosecutors should be wise and smart and balanced and not interfere in things. And we thought about that all the time because we had 
sensitive investigations of politicians, Democrat and Republican, in our office the entire time I was there. But it is a little rich for people like Rudy Giuliani and Trump and his lawyers to be raising their hand and clamoring about, you know, the norm of making sure that no action is taken close to an election. When every other regard, this president and his lawyers break every single norm about law enforcement, the rule of law, the separation of politics from law enforcement that you can think of. So I'm sure Mueller will do what is right and appropriate and balanced and safe, but it, you know, it sticks in one's craw a little bit to hear the Trump people complaining about it. My guest this week is Jonathan Swan. He's a national political correspondent at Axios, and even if you don't know his name, you definitely know his reporting. He's broken stories on the departure of White House counsel Don McGahn, the firing of Steve Bannon, the retirement of Paul Ryan, and many others. I talked to him about how he separates truth from spin, the pitfalls of anonymous quotes, and which high-powered source uses Comic Sans. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Stay tuned is supported by WordPress. WordPress powers more than 30% of all websites, from your favorite local shops to the world's biggest companies. Probably several of the political blogs you've already read this morning. When you build your website and your business on WordPress.com, you join a global high-traffic network of organizations and entrepreneurs. With WordPress, you can claim your own corner of the web with a new custom domain name, or use one that you already own. Create a site that fits you with beautiful templates and customizable themes. No design experience needed, lucky for me. It's easy to import and export content to and from your WordPress site, which is good since it's your site and your content. And WordPress offers a range of e-commerce options to promote and sell, from an easy-to-use payment button to a full-fledged online store. Maybe a campaign button. Maybe a snappy slogan on a t-shirt. You know, on the off chance you may have some deeply held beliefs you want to share. WordPress makes it easy to reach a global market and let customers find you. Built-in SEO makes your site search-friendly and ready for the world. You can get your website up and running for just $4 a month. The time to grow your business is now. Build your website today and get 15% off any new plan purchase at wordpress.com slash preet. That's wordpress.com slash preet for 15% off your brand new website. wordpress.com slash preet. Jonathan Swan, welcome to Stay Tuned. Thanks for having me. It's good to have you here. So you cover a lot of things. And at this point in human history, it seems that, you know, you need two or three brains to cover everything that's going on. I had a whole list of things to ask you about <laughs> as we tape here on Tuesday, September 4th at about 2 p.m. We just had the McCain Memorial, sad and, and poignant ceremony or ceremonies this past weekend. There was this crazy tweet that set me off yesterday by Donald Trump about the Justice Department, about Jeff Sessions. We have the beginning of the Supreme Court nomination hearing for Brett Kavanaugh. Just a couple of hours ago, it began. And then literally in the hour before I came to the studio, there was breaking news about all these things that are in this new book called Fear by Bob Woodward. And in the minute before you came on air with me, we were talking about it a little bit. Have you had a chance to read the book? I've read uh, only the reporting on the book. We still don't have a copy in our hands. So um, I've just what read... Kind of, what, what kind of 
crappy outfit is Axios running that you don't have a copy it, of the book? It's, take it up with my bosses, man. It's, it's no good. I'm guessing that they had an advantage working at the Washington Post, the people who, oh, who, who got, are you, who got are the you alleging? Are you alleging that Bob Woodward <laughs> shared a copy of his book in advance with his employer, Jeff Bezos' Washington Post? It's possible that the Amazon Washington Post just has really good sources. The Amazon Washington Post. <laughs> I love the Washington Post. I'm just being facetious. Let's just spend a few minutes talking about it. I, like you, do not have an advanced copy of the book, but there have been some some quotes from the book that are, you know, not mild. No. Let me give you an example, and I'm sure you've seen this as well. Here's, here's what Donald Trump, according to Bob Woodward, noted author and the person who exposed, along with his friend Carl Bernstein, the Watergate fiasco. Here's what he claims Donald Trump said about his attorney general, Jeff Sessions, quote, this guy is mentally retarded. He's this dumb Southerner. He couldn't even be a one-person country lawyer down in Alabama, close quote. Do you believe that that's what Donald Trump said? Do you, do you credit the reporting of, about quotes like that? Yeah, that, that quote sounds pretty, uh, pretty on the money. I haven't heard that exact phrasing hasn't been given to me by people who've been in the room with the president, but I've been told enough things that he's said privately about Sessions, ridiculing his intelligence, complaining bitterly about him, that it has the ring of truth about it. Let me read a couple of more things to you. According to the book that you and I have not read yet, uh, John Kelly, the chief of staff to Donald Trump, describes his boss as an idiot and unhinged. Uh, He reports that Mattis, the defense secretary, describes Trump as having the understanding of a fifth or sixth grader. And his former lawyer, John Dowd, according to the book, describes Trump as a effing liar and would end up in a, quote, orange jumpsuit, close quote, if he talks to Mueller. Do those ring true to you? The only one of those that I find hard to believe is the John Dowd saying that Trump is a a fucking liar. And the reason for that is I just have to go by my own interactions with Dowd. He is nothing if not borderline sycophantic to the president, even privately, and in fact gets very agitated when you do anything that approaches accountability journalism. He occasionally blind copies me on for reasons I I can't fathom, emails that he sends to people with various links to things. They're almost always in defense of the president, always in purple comic sans, which is his font of choice for his emails. So I just, <laughs> I, I find it very hard to believe that Dowd would say that. However, again, I respect Bob Woodward as a reporter and I am not going to, you know, Dowd denies it, of course, but of course he would. I mean, I, I emailed with Dowd shortly after and he says he never said that, but, you know. You mean just, uh, just this afternoon you emailed yes, with Dowd? yeah, probably about an uh, hour and a half ago. What font was he using? Uh, actually, that's a really good question. I think he might have changed his font because I, I said it on air about Comic Sans and, you know, now I'm just going to check. Can you explain to uh, folks what that comics, is? No, he doesn't use Comic Sans anymore. I'm just checking now. He's clearly changed. <laughs> you heard it here, folks. And it says sent well, Bob, from my Bob iPhone. Woodward is reporting on the disintegration of the White House and, and Jonathan Swan and I are reporting on the font change by John Dowd. It says sent, sent from my iPhone. So maybe it's because he's now using his iPhone versus the desktop. Anyway, um, Comic Sans is obviously that cartoonish font that children use for I don't know what. It's like a a very uncool font. So anyway, I have been told by people who claim to have heard it firsthand that Kelly has referred to the president as an idiot. 
I've never reported it because I haven't been able to verify it to my satisfaction. Actually, there's been two people who've told me that, but both have access to Grind. But again, I don't know. He, he may have, you know, three or four people who've been in the room with him and heard right. it, et cetera. Well, so forget about the name calling. There are a couple of other big revelations. I'm sure there will be more when more of the book, you know, gets out into the public by the time this airs in a couple of days. But there was a, there's a discussion in the book, you know, painting of a scene by Bob Woodward where Donald Trump apparently said to his defense secretary, I want you to effing kill Assad of Syria. Uh, he basically ordered an assassination, which according to the book, Matt has just ignored. What do you, does, does that... Does that sound right to you? Does that sound crazy to you? No, but this is this is the impossible thing with this. Oh, by the way, I, I've emailed the Pentagon, Mattis' spokeswoman. I emailed her about an hour ago to ask her whether they had anything to say about this. In fact, I think it was more than an hour ago I emailed her. I haven't heard anything back. I mean, this is pretty, it's a pretty big deal. A report that the President of the United States ordered you to, to take out the Syrian dictator and that you refuse the commander in chief's order. I reckon if I was the, I mean, I don't know. I'm not in the business of like being in a, in a communications office, but my, my guess is if I was, I'd be pretty quick to, if it was wrong to come out and, and refute that just to guess. Yeah. Look, when I, when I have my people do a hit, they know to take me very seriously. <laughs> They're looking at me like, what, what is we talking about? Pretend this is in Comic Sans font, <laughs> orally. So, so, th- so look, there's, there's. A, th- I was kidding, Jonathan. Don't, don't type this up. So, so there are a lot. Of, here's what I don't get: whether or not the particular stories and the particular epithets that have been used by certain people in this book or in other books, you believe or not, or if they're you know precisely correct or not. Right. Clearly, it is true that people close to Donald Trump in the White House, in the West Wing, cabinet secretaries, speak ill of him and those statements of ill will and of mockery and of denigration get out there. Why is that happening? What, what is it about, based on your reporting and your sources right. and your time in Washington covering this White House, what is it about the personalities of the people, the structure of the place, the mental state of Donald Trump that causes this to be so. I, I, I want people to understand, like, what what is going on here? So there's a few parts to it. One of the, and again, I haven't read the book, but one of the central themes of, I think Woodward even said this of his book, is that the president is surrounded by people who are not not exclusively. There are some exceptions to this. There are some people who who tell him that everything he does is correct and awesome, and they very much enable him. But but there are people around him and have been people around him who see their job as to protect the country and in some cases the world from Donald Trump. That's just a fact. There are people in the cabinet who believe that, and there are people who have and in some cases continue to work for this man who who believe that. And that's why they don't resign even though some people think they should on principle because their view is but for them things would be worse. So so one of the challenges of, of doing the type of reporting that I do and others do cover the White House is people tell you what they think and in some cases their motivation but they're not necessarily telling you the truth. And so it's hard sometimes to pass. I mean, that's certainly what they say is that they're there for, for that reason. And in some cases, I think that it's true. Certainly, if you're somebody who comes from a military background, I can. It, it's not a hard leap to imagine that 
you know, when the commander in chief asks you to serve, you serve. And you may have your views about proposals he's doing and your own ideas about what it would mean to follow through on some of these things. In some cases, I think that it's a bit cute and that a lot of people are just simply, you know, seduced by proximity to power. So I don't think that there's this sort of uniformity to motivation, which you sometimes get from some of the coverage. I think that everyone is pretty distinct. There are some people in there who have really grown to personally like him. I know that you hear... Like who? who give, uh, give me some I'm not going to because it would reveal them as a source. <laughs> you, won't, you won't tell us who likes the president? You know, well, I, like I just... It, honestly, it, <laughs> okay. would, it would reveal them as a source and it would... Um, you know, it would suggest... Yeah, and things. by process of elimination, yeah, 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 all yeah, the other people exactly. don't like the guy. But, but the number who, who genuinely like him, it's not that high, uh, but I have heard people <laughs> Ball, say... Ballpark figure. <laughs> I have heard people say... I think Michael Wolf famously said when he put out his book, which was garbage. I mean, there were parts of it which were interesting, but like Michael, I think, was reporting stuff he heard forthhand in some cases. And I know for a fact some of his accounts of things are just flat wrong. Right, that was his book, Michael Wolf's book, Fire and Fury? Yeah, yeah. Right. But one thing he said when he did his media tour, I, if I'm recalling correct, was 100% of the people in there have discussed the insanity clause or whatever it is of, is it the 25th Amendment? That's just nonsense because like there are people there who have grown to actually on a personal level like him and feel somewhat protective of him. But you asked why this happens, generally speaking, it's because none of them feel or very few of them have any feeling that he's going to be loyal to them. And they've seen enough examples of this president, previous life, and and currently discarding people, throwing people under the bus. And so they are in a constant race to preemptively, and in some cases, retroactively protect themselves. It's constant self-preservation. And one way they've done that, I think you folks, among others, Axios, among others, reported that not only did Omarosa record a few things, but she seems to have recorded everything. She had her personal phone on record for all those meetings. Is that true? Yeah. What our understanding is, and this is from somebody who has observed her, is that a lot of her phone calls, if not all of her phone calls, she took a lot of them on her work phone and had her personal phone. She put it on speaker and recorded. And then she also took two phones into meetings. One of them would be in her purse, a bag or whatever it was, recording live in, in, in real time. I can't say she did that 100% of the time, but she did it a lot. It was standard operating procedure for her. When you have conversations with people at the White House in your reporting, uh, whether they're on or off the record, do you record those conversations? Only if I ask their permission. I don't record people without their permission. But do you typically ask to record? I do it sometimes, but most of my conversations, no. The, the, The truth is that... The minute you ask someone to put a tape on, they immediately stop telling you the truth. That's been my experience. Right. You know there's a tape on right now, right? Um, is there? I thought this was on background. Yes, this is, this is, this is being <laughs> taped, my friend. So They clam up. They yeah. stop telling the truth. They, you know, there are conversations I've had. <laughs> I'll tell you one story. <laughs> so, so the Stormy Daniels thing comes out, right? The first story, the Wall Street Journal story. And I, I, I speak to someone in the White House, so, you know, fairly senior person there. And, um, and the story's just broke. And I said, is it true? <laughs> and they said, they said, is this on or off the record? And I'm like, oh, well, you know, 
off the record and they said, um, yeah, of, of course it's true. And then I said, uh, on the record, and they're like, well, obviously I'm not authorized to talk about this, but they, they started laughing and they said, on the record, we vehemently deny, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, so, well, I then mean, what's your ethical yeah. obligation? Then what do you report there? Is, isn't no, there some... so, no, well, in that case, they, this person was not someone who's authorized. They were just screwing around. It was, it was a joke. Honestly, most of, most of the conversations I have are either off the record or on some form of background because the minute you ask someone to go on the record, they just give you talking points. And in many cases, those talking points are... They're not always totally false, but they're, you know, in many cases, at least leaving out what's really going on. So can we talk about credibility of reporting? And I want to get into, you know, your, as the agency would say, sources and methods a little bit. So you mentioned the book Michael Wolf wrote, and you said that was garbage. Yeah. And we have a new book that we haven't read yet, but we know the author, the country and the world knows the author very well, Bob Woodward. I would imagine you would say that you would be more likely to believe the anecdotes and stories and facts and conversations that are reported in the Woodward book than you would believe what's reported in the Wolf book. Why, why is that? Because Bob Woodward makes the effort based on four decades, five decades, to speak to every single person he physically can, using every method he can, who was in the room or was briefed on something. He, he compiles hundreds of hours of interviews paper trails, gets documents, etc. Now, is he... Vol- Michael Wolf would say he would, I presume, would say he does the same. Well, right? he, and- he just doesn't. So, so, so Wolf, you know, when someone covers your beat, right? So that's the White House, right? And frankly, the campaign. It's different because I actually have reported on a lot of the same events and instances that Wolf uh, reports. So, for example, when I read his account of election night, it just doesn't bear any resemblance to people that I have over time developed as sources who were in the room. It's just not what he said happened, didn't happen. I know who his source was for his, this is, I'm giving you a small example, but there was an anecdote in his book that Mitch McConnell skipped a meeting with Trump to get a haircut. I know who fed that nonsense to Wolf because they tried it on me, but I made about 10 phone calls and, and this person said, oh, if you don't believe me, check with X person there in the room. I did. It didn't happen. Never happened. So I have more confidence that Woodward actually goes to the lengths to try to get to the closest approximation of the truth. Now, are there going to be errors in the book? Of course, um, are people going to misremember conversations or even spin him? You're, you know, when you're doing this kind of reporting, you are vulnerable to powerful people telling you their version of events. So, yes, of course, those things are considerations and concerns. But how do you do, I'm still, you know, I, I was in a similar business. Sure. And, and we had to deal all the time, particularly with, as people talk about, cooperating witnesses, people who have lied, people who have committed crimes. And now we have to rely on them to testify in court right. and give incriminating information about other people. So, you know, in, in that context, we did a lot of different kinds of corroboration. Right. So you're a reporter. Let's say you're writing yeah. an article yeah. um, about some meeting. Right. That happened. Maybe some right. of these things that Woodward is talking about in the book. And, then, and so somebody, a source you have in the White House who you generally trust, reports to you that Mattis called Trump mm-hmm. an effing idiot. Mm-hmm. And, that's all, and, and that's all you have at that moment. Mm-hmm. Do you feel comfortable writing that in your article? Of course not. So what do you do then to become comfortable reporting that? When did he say it? Who was in the room? Where was the meeting? First, those are all those things. If it was a conversation between the two of them, 
okay, well, how do you know that? That's a great question to ask sources. How right. do you... So you, you sort of test them by seeing how, how much detail they have about the exactly. circumstances surrounding the exactly. statement. Exactly, exactly. So let's say they have all that. They say, you know, it was in the Situation Room. Great. It was at the end of a meeting about um, Syria, and it was said. Okay. Is that enough? No. You need other people who were in the room who heard it with their own ears. You need a second person to tell you that that happened. For something that happened uh, of significance in a room, of course. Like, yeah. like I've done. I, I did a story last year of an Oval Office meeting where Trump. It was one of the first ones that really showed just how bad the tensions were in his team on trade. I reported on this very vivid scene in the Oval Office. Now, I'm not going to actually get into sources and method, but I will just say that that was that was a very well corroborated account. And had I been told it by one person in the room, it just wouldn't have sufficed. You have to, I mean, but the way you report and the way I I believe Woodward does is you get a nugget from one person and you bring it to another person. You test it. Is it true? You build on it. You go back, you cross-reference, you go, you circle back with your original source. Is it possible he said this? You get a third source. Did someone brief someone on it? Was there any documentation of it? I mean, you just build, it's like scaffolding. You just build, 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 build. How do you rank the credibility of your sources? So for example, let's say you have somebody who has given you credible information before and then they lie to you Yeah. or they, they fudge something, you know, pretty seriously. Yeah. Do you cut them off forever? Are they dead to you? Because reporters have told me that if they get lied to, um, they're done with that person going forward. What's the forgiveness basis here? I won't say who it is, but there is a person who uh, is very senior in in uh, Trump's orbit. Who, if it's Kellyanne Conway, blink once. Uh, <laughs> it is not Kellyanne Conway. Oh, uh, is it Roger? I'm not. Stop this. I'm not doing this. I'm not doing this. No, I just, I, I'm not getting into this game. All right. You just, ex- I'll just let the, let the record reflect. You were only willing to, to exonerate Kellyanne Conway. Uh, I, I'm not getting into any of this. There is one person who uh, lied to me in such a, it was something that I had heard with my own ears. So it wasn't even secondhand. And I told them they were basically i used unprintable or unspeakable language to them and you've then, already used the f word once uh, so. exactly <laughs> was it more unprintable or unspeakable than that it was probably more aggressive than that and i <laughs> okay. told them that our relationship is over and the only time they would hear from me is when i had something to write about them and i would still as a matter of professional courtesy uh reach out to them beforehand well, that's fascinating to me did, did that person seem at all chagrined or upset? no absolutely not they were aggressive back we basically agreed to hate each other. Okay. Um, but mostly, mostly it's a challenge. And like I will... But I want to stick with the person who lied to you because that's, uh-huh. that's interesting to me because I, I don't know that world so much. I mean, obviously in the, in the prosecution world, you know, there's a possibility of rehabilitating, but it's, it's a very right. bad thing to lie. Right. When that happens, do you go to your colleagues at Axios who may not know that this person is a liar and share that information about this terrible source or do you keep it to yourself? What's, what's the ethics there? In that case, I did. I don't know that I have hard and fast rules about that. But, but yeah, I, I generally would because if they lied to me, they'll lie to my colleagues. And, right. and I assume the same is you know, true on the other side, by the way. So like one of the principles of reporting is protecting sources and protecting agreements you made about off-the-record anonymity. Now, my assumption is if I burned somebody, which I've never done ever – 
if I burned somebody, they would tell everyone they know and and that you know no one would. And then you're to me right. It's, it yeah. works both ways. So and I assume, you're burned. like it's a it's a two way street. But the more honest answer is that was a one extreme example. Honestly, some of my sources, I have caught them lying to me, and I've chosen to not confront them about it. I've just stored it in the back of my mind as, you know, liar. Like, it's one thing for someone to give <laughs> okay. you – it's one thing for someone to say something that's not right, but it's one, there, there are some instances where you you know for close to 100% certainty that they've lied to you. And in those cases, I mostly just store it in the back of my head. And there are certainly people who I talk to that everything is false until proven otherwise. So I'm not that worried about, this might sound odd, I'm not that worried about the flagrant liar who has a personal agenda and that a smart person like you will be able to figure out that they're not to be trusted. What I'm worried about, and tell me if these people exist, because I assume they do because I'm a cynical person, they're people who have credibility. Yes. And they tell you the truth, and they give you some scoops. And yeah. we had cooperating witnesses like this too. And they they know you're writing a story about the Defense Department or about trade, and they'll tell you some nuggets, and they'll check out, and you'll believe that person. And that person then earns some purchase with you. And then there's a story that you're writing about some other thing, and then now that person has an incentive to fudge or lie, but has built up enough mm. good faith, uh, respect from you. How do you deal with the people who... From time to time, once they have your trust, fake things. That is something I worry about. And I don't think I've ever sort of caught someone red-handed doing that, but I, I assume that it is possible. And again, it just comes back to having standard practices, which is you can't ever fully trust anyone. You need to have other sources and you need to have sources who are in other camps. Like if an organization is factionalized, like the White House is, you can't rely on one or two people or, or one camp of people to give you information because that will just, you know, inevitably lead to either incomplete or distorted narratives. So my general approach is you actually can't trust anyone really. So when Donald Trump goes out there, and I presume he will say this about this book, and he said this about many, many reports, that if it's an anonymous source, and that's what we've been talking about, right? If it's an anonymous source, they made it up, don't believe it, discredit it. Obviously, he has served as his own anonymous source previously. He got mad, I think, in the last few days because something that he said off the record to some folks was reported in the in the Toronto Star having to do with trade with Canada. So you know, he obviously uses it. His White House uses the tool of being an anonymous source for you know to you and other reporters. But when he says to the public, don't believe any of this, I, I think he overstates it. But how how are we supposed to judge what we read given all the perils and risks and incentives for people to make themselves look better or to trash their enemies or to, you know, feel important? All these these things that you have experienced when people right. tell you things that are not true. Right. So you're, you're the lay public and you pick up Axios or you pick up the New York Times. You know, should we only be reading, you know, certain writers who we trust more? How do we gauge the right. truthfulness of what we're reading? So uh, as a practice, I don't grant people anonymity to trash their enemies. If they want to trash their enemies, they can, they can put their name to it. So that's one way of avoiding that. I think you have to ask yourself, 
is the reporting anchored in time and place and scene? Is there a room that it's in? Where did this conversation happen? The reporting that drives me the most nuts is, and look, I, you know, glass houses, I've, I've probably done a few of these, but like Donald Trump has been saying this or telling friends this, but it's not anchored anywhere. That's a really dangerous type of reporting because, you know, it's impossible to disprove you know, no one knows who he's talking to late at night. I know who claimed to be talking to him late at night. Uh, some of them, I think, are full of it. Some of them I know are true because I talk to people who've been there when the president has been on the phone to them. But the reporting that is detailed, that has multiple people in a room, th- that deserves a, a higher level of credence than than some of this other stuff that's very thin. Another thing is, yes, I mean, I, I hate to say it, but like... I do trust individual bylines more than I trust publications. I don't. I don't think any publication deserves uh, my trust. I think individual reporters earn trust over a long period of time, and they frankly explode trust. I live in constant fear of tomorrow. I make some massive screw up, and then you know my career's over, or every, everyone looks at my stuff with. A level of oh yeah, Jonathan wrote it. It's it may be right, it may not, and so reporters build that up over a very long period right. of time. Is your level of fear? You know, it occurs to me as you said that is your level of fear and the level of fear of your colleagues at a high point now because everything is so fraught yes. and you have people who are, you know, for legitimate reasons, prepared to pounce on any error by the mainstream media right now. Yeah. And the president himself, obviously, will call you out by name. Yeah. We have a president who's going to weaponize it. Look, politicians, at least in sort of recorded memory in, in this country and other countries, have used the media as a foil in different ways. But I don't think it's a controversial thing to say that there is no historical, at least in America, parallel to Donald Trump in the way that he'll weaponize anything. So, But what's the consequence of it? Is the consequence of that that you're all, you're all terrified? And or that the level of accuracy and refinement in reporting is at an all-time high because of that fear, or is the opposite true? I always had that terror, and that was more because of the way I was raised and mentored as a reporter. But um, yes, I think generally speaking, people are definitely afraid of being called out by him by name and the threats and the sort of things that would accompany that. So I can only speak for myself, which is that I always had that stomach-churning fear whenever I have a scoop. Uh, right. And you, and you, yeah. by the way, speaking of scoops, uh, you know, not having done this beat for that long, I have a list in front of me of your scoops, which are very impressive, including the first to report that Anthony Scaramucci was going to be hired as a communications director. You broke that Trump would recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, that Steve Bannon would be fired. All, how do you get these scoops? Is it because of your brilliance, your <laughs> persistence, uh, your charm, or that people love an Australian accent? It was a combination of those things. Oh, it's clearly <laughs> my brilliance, Breit. How Didn't you know that? Um, <laughs> you just, it's, it's interesting that you decided to go with brilliance rather than it's charm. obviously brilliant. Okay. No, um, it, it's actually the same. I was a reporter in Australia. It's the same set of skills. Look, I'm good at, I'm good at one thing, which is source building. And I'm, I also spend an inordinate amount of time doing that with a lot of help. 
how proprietary are people about their sources? Do your colleagues introduce you to their sources? Or is it like, you know, hey, kid, get your own? No, my colleagues are extremely, extremely generous. But I spend, it is literally, I'm maniacal about source building. It is very deliberate. It is a long-term process. And I spend almost all of my time on it. I've neglected other tools in the toolkit. I'm a very, very, as Michael Wolf pointed out publicly, I'm a very mediocre writer. And, uh, and, and, and I have not developed my writing skills in any way, which, which works because I have to write in bullet points now. So no one, no one notices. You're like the anti-New Yorker. I can read your stuff very No fast. one needs uh, 10,000 words of Jonathan Swan. I'm no gay to Lee's, but I'm good at source building. Well, so let's talk about one of your scoops that I think is really interesting in the current climate. And that is that Don McGahn, the White House counsel, mm. was planning to leave the White House. And there's, there's all this reporting that you have you know, pushed and that other people have written about as well, that Don McGahn, through his lawyer, Bill Burke, who I should you know put on the record, is a personal friend of mine who's in the news a lot lately. We're fellow colleagues in the Southern mm. District of New York together. Uh, how he cooperated extensively with the Mueller probe to a degree that maybe the president did not appreciate, sat for 30 hours of interviews. What, what do you think was going on with Don McGahn in terms of his self-protection versus protection of the president versus protection of the presidency. What, what do you make of this whole Don McGahn White House counsel business? Well, I'll stick to what I know. So I know that both Don McGahn and his lawyer, Bill Burke, were surprised is a mild word that Ty Cobb, John Dowd were willing to make them available to Mueller and to encourage the level of open cooperation that they did. i believe that they thought it was insane that they would do that. <laughs> is that is that a direct is that a direct quote? Insane? It's definitely not a direct quote. Okay. Effing insane. <laughs> uh, so that is one part of it. I don't know with a level of precision how Trump reacted to that New York Times piece because I just don't have an account from somebody that I trust who was firsthand. But I will tell you the relationship between Donald Trump and Don McGahn is terrible and has been pretty bad for some time. The president has been very, very frustrated with him, has chewed him out in front of other people to, in an excruciating way. And vice versa? Is that is that frustration, is it reciprocal? Based on what Don has said to his colleagues uh, at different times, yeah. I mean, the defense of Don McGahn by his allies is that he was working for a man who would ask him fairly regularly to do things that were self-harmful to the president and legally problematic, and that he was doing the best he could to put a guardrail around around this president. But tr from Trump's point of view, and again, he has not been shy about this to people uh, who've worked for him and, and other people, is that Don McGahn was always slow to react to his demands, looking for a way to say no, not a way to say yes, et cetera, et cetera. Trump is, as you know, very litigious and is used to work. Like He doesn't distinguish between lawyers. In some ways, it's all my pit bull defense lawyer. It doesn't matter whether yeah, you're he thinks, the... He thinks, his, he thinks his Justice Department is there to just represent him. He, he wants Roy Cohn as the Attorney General. Like, it, it doesn't matter. Like, they're his Justice Department, the Trump Justice Department. They're his lawyers who work for him. Yeah. Look, day by day, I become more convinced that the reason he was trying to develop a relationship with me and calling me on the side 
without the attorney general was for this very purpose, to have, you know, somebody in his corner or in his pocket to do things that he wanted to do that maybe weren't on the up and up. But let me, we're running out of time, and I wanted to ask you about something that you wrote recently and maybe have you predict into the future of where you think, you know, this sort of turmoil in the White House is going, what it will lead to. You, you wrote recently about sort of a shift in the sentiments of the people who are around the president. You wrote, for the first time, I'm hearing real fear and concern in the voices of Trump allies. What, what, is, what does that mean? Are people more concerned than they were before about where Trump is heading and where the country is heading? That was very specific to when that crazy, insane day, which I, you did a, actually a great podcast on it when you were absorbing it in real time. But oh, yeah, that, 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 was that was a wild crazy day. day. When, when Manafort was convicted and Michael Cohen pled guilty. That day, I mean, just think about it from their perspective. Some of these people, not many now, but, but certainly the ones who worked on the campaign, they worked with Manafort and they know Cohen. Uh, Cohen was around, you know, anyone who's been in Trump's orbit through the campaign knows Michael Cohen. They're both going to jail. They're both going to jail. So, like, you know, whereas before, yeah, it's bad and there's all this media scrutiny and we have to lawyer up and God knows it costs a lot of money to hire lawyers and stuff. People are under stress from that investigation. Gets really real when, when, when you find out that two people that you worked in close proximity with are going to prison. So yeah, it did. And it's not like they have any great foreknowledge. I'm still yet to speak to anyone privately who worked on the campaign or in the White House who actually thinks that they're going to find the smoking gun where Trump has a, you know, line to Putin and et cetera, et cetera. But they're worried enough just based on What's been found, I mean, the Manafort stuff is stuff from his business career, same as Cohen. So there's always been a concern that they'll go into Trump's personal finances. And just just proximity to this kind of thing is scary for a lot of these people. So what do you think happens next? How do you think this all ends? Predict what's going to happen every day for the next uh, <laughs> 60 days. <laughs> well, do you think, do you think Mueller, when do you think he's going to put out his report? I asked the question. Look, I think that's something that people don't fully appreciate is that the, the 60-day unwritten rule, Trump himself is on, right. is on the ballot. So the, the issue on, I mean, it's clearly true that you have to be most careful about bringing some significant enforcement action against a particular person who is himself or herself on a ballot in the immediate future because you would affect that election most dramatically and directly. You also want to be concerned generally about the calendar and about perceptions, and I think that Mueller is that way. So I, I tend to think that the likelihood of a dramatic action being taken or closure on something happening diminishes every day we get closer to the hmm. midterm elections, but that doesn't mean that things won't happen. Right. I mean, you can see you know, more charges against associates of Trump and others. I don't think there's anything that prevents you know, hypothetically Roger Stone from being charged you know, in October. Hmm. Um, Although if you can wait till after the election and there's no harm, then maybe you wait. I mean, these are these are conversations we would have in my office also. But I, I think people are overstating, you know, the halt that right. they think is coming. Right. Uh, Jonathan Swan, thank you so much for being on the show. As often happens in the, you know, 60 hours or so between now and when the pod drops on Thursday morning, who knows, right, who knows exactly. what will have been rendered moot or more poignant. And I'm sure that lots of news has unfolded in the... In the 45 minutes we've been talking, I want to thank you very much. People should really pay attention to your reporting because I, I expect a lot of good scoops from you going forward. Thanks so much, Brady. 
So let me end this week's show by telling you something that I've been thinking about since John McCain passed. You know, I had the, the privilege of, of meeting John McCain on a number of occasions when I worked in the Senate. I think I tweeted a story about how I somehow got into the members' elevator. There are separate members' elevators for senators in the Capitol. And on one occasion, I was brought into the elevator by Senator Schumer, even though I was not a member. And McCain was there. And I don't know what he said, but there was an exchange between him and Senator Schumer, and he included me, that made me laugh really hard because he was a guy who was very serious uh, but he's also a very funny guy, an ordinary, relatable person who passed, and his passing has caused a lot of people to be incredibly sad and also reflective about what is happening in the country. And so I was watching his daughter, Megan McCain, give her eulogy for her father, and then read about later some of the things that George W. Bush said and that Barack Obama said, and then I've also seen the reaction and you know, the criticism from people who are in favor of Trump. And it's interesting to me that even though Donald Trump's name was never mentioned during those services, and even though mostly what was said was a tribute to and celebration of decency and bipartisanship, that those statements that by themselves are pretty great expressions of what America and American democracy are about, that those caused Trump supporters to howl in protest that these were attacks on the president. I mean, what, is it, what does it say about your political patron if people simply make unobjectionable remarks about decency and fairness and inclusivity and open-mindedness? That's taken as an attack, as a political partisan attack on the person you voted for. It's a remarkable thing. And not a good thing. You know, there's lots and lots of things that I think are unremarkable that could be said in this country. But in today's time, because of the Trump distorting lens, people think that they're political and partisan statements. I, I, just, find, I just find it really interesting. And, I, and, I, and the reason I was thinking about it was a speech I gave recently in the Trump era to a bunch of law students where I was trying to draw the analogy between you know, how we conduct ourselves in the search for truth in the courtroom and comparing it to how we seem to conduct our public debates in the public square and how, contrary to popular belief, you know, so the rules and norms in a courtroom provide some example and some lesson and maybe even some inspiration for how we might make our political dialogue better. So in the speech, I said this, I said, in the courtroom, almost uniquely, the quest for truth depends on evidence and on facts. It relies on examination and cross-examination. It abhors assumption and insinuation. It relies on the right of both sides to present arguments and to challenge arguments, and it lets both sides do so without fear of being shouted down or shut down so long as the presentations are fairly made with respect and decorum and so long as they do not make undue appeals to prejudice or fear or emotion and at every phase of the trial, members of the jury are admonished repeatedly to do what? To keep an open mind. Every day, the judge reminds the jury to keep an open mind, to remember the presumption of innocence, until all sides have been heard, until all facts have been offered, until all fair arguments have been made. That is the best way our law has determined to discover truth 
and to achieve justice. And I said, this, there's something strikingly special about that. And we should all wonder whether it provides some guidance for the way to search for truth and justice in our society as well. Maybe we can avoid appeals to prejudice and hatred. Maybe we can be fair in our arguments. Maybe we can rely on truth and facts. And when people don't behave that way, we can dismiss their arguments. And so I said all of this, and the reaction you know, was pretty positive. And people came up to me afterwards, and they said it was very important for you to say those things in the age of Trump. The interesting point, though, is I wrote that speech three years ago in the era of Obama. And I gave a version of it more recently. So it's another example of how arguments about decency and about getting along with people who have opposing views are things that people have been saying for a long time. The difference is those arguments and divides have been made sharper, have been made more yawning, have been made more violent since Donald Trump became president. These things that people are talking about are universal. And maybe they have you know, greater resonance today because of our institutions coming under attack. But there are things that have been said in years past. There are things that are being said, I think, more urgently now. And long after Trump is gone, they should still be said. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Jonathan Swan. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news and politics. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or give me a call at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send me an email to staytunedatcafe.com. Now, I say this from time to time, and it's true. While I definitely can't answer every question we get, my team and I read every single one, and we very much appreciate them. Your questions, the ones I answer and the ones I don't, are smart, curious, and thought-provoking, and the show wouldn't be the same without them. So please keep them coming. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE. It's produced by the team at Pineapple Street Media, Kat Aaron, Chris Berube, Henry Malofsky, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Joel Lovell, and Max Linsky. Our music is by Andrew Dost. And special thanks to Julia Doyle, Jeff Eisenman, Vinay Basti, and Jake McAbee. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned. <laughs>